And so it is our pleasure to listen to the words of our brother Ron Abel when he speaks on the subject so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. My beloved brothers and sisters, I'd like to convey to you the hearty greetings of your brothers and sisters at the Scarlet Road Toronto Ecclesia, at the Ecclesia where I come from at Grand Valley, about 70 miles north of Toronto, and of your brothers and sisters in the Adelaide area. Now I see we have a number of young people with us tonight. That's a very good sign. A lot of our remarks will be made uh, especially relevant to the young people as we move through Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. We will pause to uh, take a close look at those passages which may be cited by sectarians and pose a problem for us in terms of exposition. I would like to stress that tonight I will be using the Revised Standard Version. This will be a useful contrast for those of you who will be using the Authorized Version. I have a little Bible which I use uh, for our preaching work and our instruction of friends, the Authorized Version, because it becomes a little confusing if you're using a different translation. Now I find the advantage <coughs> with the Bible I have is that it's useful for marking. And uh, Corinthians is the second book that I have undertaken by way of a major study going through verse by verse through the epistle. And really, I can't recommend this enough. For a large number of years after I was baptized, I confined myself to a little Bible, thinking that I could contain whatever I knew uh, in my cranium and thereby be able to use it later on. I soon found out, however, that I really couldn't remember all I would like to know, and for some of the specialized information, if you've got it in your Bible, then you can reproduce it on the spot just when it's needed. So I can't recommend enough, if you're the kind of person that was like me with the small Bible, um, a wide-margin Bible is a very useful tool in uh, expounding points of Bible teaching and for reviewing points of edification when you wish to sit down. As you can see, the marking that I've done in Corinthians can be used time and time again. Now, if you have a map in your Bible, could you take it out and take a look at the city of Corinth, where it is located on a map? Now this will locate geographically the area of our study. We have Corinth not very far from Athens and the influence of the philosophies that emanated from Athens. Up here we have the area of Macedonia and down here Achaia. Uh, there was a huge Agropolis, a stone, a huge rock uh, in the area of Corinth. There was a canal here that was a very uh, large source of income for the people who lived in that area because shipping around this 200-mile peninsula was expensive and rather dangerous and so the light ships were taken uh, through the canal or dragged overland. There's <coughs> a bit of useful background on Corinth. When Titus and Vespasian came down to Jerusalem, we'll let this represent the walls of Jerusalem, 
about 70 A.D., Vespasian came down toward Jerusalem, and then he retreated and Titus took over the campaign. Now the Jews retreated within the city walls at 70 A.D., and so Vespasian put a circumvalio all around the city of Jerusalem. This was a mound of earth, a trench, fulfilling the Bible prophecy by Jesus. They dug a trench and piled the earth all around the city walls to try and trap people that were escaping out of the walls. And so Titus with his battering rams smashed day and night against the walls. With his ballistae, these were stone-throwing devices, they would pitch a hundred-pound rocks over the walls, sometimes 600 yards, into the city in order to break down the resistance of the people. But the Jews were so avaricious that they would swallow their jewels and try and get through the wall and by the guard and escape in the surrounding hills. Well, Titus captured many of these. Many of them he crucified. But he took 6,000 slaves as he moved in to the siege of Jerusalem, one of whom was Josephus, who was employed outside the walls to beseech the people inside to surrender. But 6,000 of those Jews were taken from Jerusalem at 70 A.D. and transported all the way over to uh, Corinth to help dig that canal through. Now, the canal was never successfully completed until about uh, 1883. In fact, it became really useful about the year 1893. Incidentally, that was the year that our first ecclesia was founded in uh, the land of Guyana, in the area of Demerara, Georgetown, Guyana, the year the canal uh, became serviceable uh, at Corinth. Now, this canal is about uh, all six miles long. Its uh, banks go up about six, 260 feet. It's about 76 feet wide, and now it will take ships up to 8,000 tons. But that's a, a very uh, great source of revenue to the people living in Corinth. What kind of city was Corinth? Well, Corinth was notorious. Corinth was notorious for this Greek word, pornea. And that's a word we should remember because it comes up time and time again in Paul's epistle to the Corinthians. It has to deal with fornication. And Corinth had a large temple dedicated to Aphrodite. And the temple had a thousand priestesses that were dedicated to Pornia. And so you can see part of the everyday life of the Corinthian was involved in his religious system, the worshiping of Aphrodite at the temple and with the meat offered to idols and then sold in the shambles, a problem Paul comes to deal with in his eighth chapter. Now, the Corinthians, um, sort of um, carrying on the Greek heritage, had the Isthmian Games. Every two years these were held, and so Paul consequently employs many of his images from these games. You will um, recollect in his ninth chapter, the apostle employs the imagery uh, from these games. Verse 24 of his ninth chapter. Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. 
Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. That's the coronal wreath. But we, an imperishable. Well, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I pommel my body and subdue it. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. A very good text to cite those who claim to have eternal security to be saved uh, for eternity upon coming to an altar confession. You notice here he employs the image of the athlete running, the athlete disciplining his body as a boxer who's not shallow, shadow boxing, but one really boxing. I pommel my body, says the Apostle Paul, and subdue it. And so he's taking his imagery from what would be commonplace to the Corinthians. But in 146 B.C., uh, Mumius, the Roman, came down and he burned Corinth. And you can imagine the great stone architecture of the temples, which uh, remained standing after the fire had gone through, but the hay and the wood and the stubble was all destroyed. Now this is moving into somewhat our talk tomorrow night, but you get the picture. Uh, when he came through in 146 B.C., uh, the hay, the straw, was all burnt up. And just that which was stone or precious metals survived the fire. And so in chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says, Yet he shall be saved so as by fire, referring to the preacher in relation to his converts. That's chapter 3, um, beginning at uh, verse 12. This is where he alludes to building on the foundation that which is laid in Christ Jesus. Now, over and over again, one of the keys to an understanding of Corinthians is to appreciate the imagery, you know, similes, metaphors, in terms of the everyday life uh, of Corinth. This was the uh, conditions in which Corinthians lived. Now, just supposing uh, you were a preacher. Now, supposing you lived in the first century. Would you have thought that Corinth would be a good place to preach the gospel? People that had a tradition of rhetoric and sophistry, people who loved to argue and to reason and to debate, is this what you would uh, like to have as a background for going to preach the truth? People whose immorality was so notorious that to Corinthianize meant to engage in pornea. Is that the kind of people you would have gone to to preach the word? A floating population. People got off the ships down here and you had Jews, you had Italians, you had Greeks. You had a floating population of people that came to Corinth. Wouldn't make for stability, would it? But back in Acts chapter 20, we have these sterling words, brethren and sisters. This is the Apostle Paul, um, sorry, chapter 18, recalling the vision. Acts 18, verse 10. For I am with you, and no man shall attack you to harm you. For I have many people in this city, that in this city, with all the notoriousness of its, uh, of its morality that the God of Israel 
had much people in this city. And so the apostle says, Now thieves and greedy, those who are greedy, and drunkards and revilers and robbers, will not inherit the kingdom of God, says the apostle, writing to the Corinthians. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. So you see that the Corinthians really came from this class of people. In fact, when he tells them in chapter 5, verse 9, just a passing note, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral men. And he says, well, look, he says, if, if I meant all the people in the world, he says, then you would need go out of the world. Chapter 5, verse 9. In other words, he's saying that immorality was so bad here that in telling them not to have company with those who were fornicators, they'd have to leave the whole society. Things were so bad. Chapter 5, verse 9. And of course, in the context, he's referring to the brethren. And this problem came up in chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, he says. And furthermore, brethren, just look at the tradition that these Greeks in Corinth inherited from their forefathers. You know, on the good side of the heritage, there was the Socratic method of argumentation. Now, this was employed very, very often by Robert Roberts to extremely good advantage. If you read Isaac Collier's book on Robert Roberts, he points this out. For example, in the trial, did Christ rise from the dead? Socratic method of argumentation. Um, Robert Roberts used it in his debate with uh, Edward Hine, um, our Englishman Israelites. He employed it when he debated with Bradlaugh, the atheist. Socratic method of argumentation. And this was a system of argumentation whereby you employed well-chosen questions to lead your opponent inescapably to the conclusion. And there was the syllogism, also used by John Thomas and Robert Roberts very much. For example, all men are mortal. Uh, what's the conclusion? Anybody? God Pardon me? God no, that's not the conclusion here. All men are mortal. I am a man. Therefore, I am mortal. therefore, I am mortal. That's the syllogism, a valid form of argumentation used today. You made your premise, you mind your premise, and then your conclusion. And if your opponent admits your premises, he cannot escape your conclusion. And that goes back to Aristotle and is called the syllogism. And if you read carefully through the works of Roberts and Thomas, you'll see how often this form of argumentation is employed. But much more so, our background must take cognizance of the ethics of the Greeks. Now, if we're going to appreciate how the Apostle Paul is under challenge all through his first and second epistles, we must understand the ethics of the Greeks, as you can see down here on our chart. The Greeks uh, had a theory, a philosophy of ethics. 
ethics relating to uh, morality, what one ought or ought not to do. And they employed uh, uh, oratory and eloquence and rhetoric uh, as part of their culture. And I'm sure those of you who have read uh, Plato's Theaetetus or The Republic, which is a better known publication, you will see how they really do employ eloquence and oratory and rhetoric par excellence for the Greeks. Now this is why, you see, the atonement, a crucified Jesus Christ, was abhorred by the Greeks. To the Greeks it was an absurdity of a crucified Messiah. How could this relate to, to ethics? To the Greek, all you have to do is know what you want to do and you'll do it. And that's the universal failure of the Greek ethical system. They argued, if you know, you will do. Boy, that would be really great if that were true, wouldn't it? Just imagine if you had an ethical system for us. If you knew, you would do. Does that sound like the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7? The good that I would, that I do not. I find a law in my members, says the Apostle Paul, but not the Greeks. The Greeks with their head in the clouds figured that the universal panacea is to know, get knowledge, then you will do. And you can see how this militated against Paul's preaching of a crucified Messiah who declared the righteousness of God and showed human nature for what it really is. What's the Greek doing? Oh, the Greek's parading his physical prowess. He goes down to the Isthmian Games. He enjoys the strength of a man and the eloquence of the orator. So the universal failure of the Greeks, if you know, you will do. Now some of you may have read Plato's Republic. Plato's Republic has an allegory in it that represents the Greek thought that was the heritage in Corinth at this time. Now the Greek heritage was that uh, in this life, we're like individuals chained together in a cave. So get the picture. This is all cave here. It's all cut out of a mountain here. Really comes out further here. And we have a fire just at the mouth of the cave. So says Plato, reality that we see around us is mere shadows. Now you'll see how this ties in with the doctrine of the immortality of the soul. Here you have these three individuals chained together so they can't turn around. They're always facing the side of the cave. And as the light flickers here, they see the shadows. And that's all they ever see is the shadowy existence of their reflection as the flame flickers at the mouth of the cave. Now this was Plato's view of reality and represented Greek thinking of the time. So says Plato, I'm not really what I think I am. The real me is the soul, it's the world of the forms. And so the Greeks uh, tended to debase the arts. Though I guess some of you who, uh, who read through tragedy will know about the tragic catharsis, where one identifies with the tragedy of the play and thereby experiences a purgation in uh, the Aristotelian tragedies. But you see, the arts were poo-pawed by the Greeks because that's a shadow of a shadow. So you're getting further removed from reality for the Greeks. 
And so, said Plato, society ought to be like our souls. We have a tripartite soul, said Plato. And he says it really reflects uh, the outside world. He said we have our philosophers, and where are they? They're the top echelon of society. The philosophers, they're the thinkers. They're the ones that if they know, they'll do. So they should run society. Then we have the warriors, said Plato, because they're the ones that will protect our state and engage in warfare. Then we have the artisans. And of course, this just mirrored for him what our being really is like. The soul, the spirit, and the body. Now look at the way this philosophy works. Warriors are the appetitive kind. The kind of individuals given to uh, the spirit. You know, like a horse. The artisans, the men that work with their hands, these uh, represented the body. So you see in the Ecclesia, when Paul was instrumental in the conversion of an artisan, who's he going to follow? Is he going to follow Apollos? A man who's eloquent in the word and mighty? No, that's going to be this class of society, or this class of society. So you see, the social background of Corinth is reflected in the partisan spirit that you see in chapter 1. I am of Paul, says one group. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. I am of Christ. And you can see that the split of the parties will be reflected, in fact, in the background of how they viewed society. And much more so. For men like Aristotle, you had a chain of being. You had matter at the bottom and form at the top. Now that uh, virtually became a breakdown for the Gnostics, of which we hear so much in uh, John's epistles about the Gnostic uh, heresy, denying that Christ came in the flesh. And they broke the world up into two groups, the world of matter and the world of form. Now you can see that there is a resemblance to Paul's teaching in Romans. The resemblance being you have down here the body, really the flesh, and the spirit. You know, the chain of being. For the Greeks, matter and form up the top. Down here with the, uh, with the teaching of the Apostle Paul in Romans, you have that which is fleshly and lowly. And you have the spirit up here. And you can appreciate the interrelationship of the two. Now this was Grecian thinking at the time, and uh, this forms a background to our appreciation of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But can we go back and see how the Apostle Paul moves in his environment at Corinth in his 18th chapter? <clears throat> well, where does he come from? Well, the Apostle Paul in chapter 17 has come from Athens. And the Athenians, he finds out, are quite different from uh, those at Berea, because in his 11th verse of his 17th chapter, he says, they receive the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Acts 17.11. And so the Apostle Paul comes along to Athens. You can just, just imagine Athens, this great center with all this tradition of uh, 
of the eloquent speakers and uh, those who could debate the problems of ethics very eloquently. And here comes the old Apostle Paul. His bodily presence is weak and his speech is contemptible. He may be rude in speech, but he says, I am not rude in knowledge. And he comes, verse 16, verse 17. He argued in the synagogue with the Jews, as his custom was, and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who chanced to be there. And who's there? The Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers meet him. And some say, what would this babbler say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities or foreign divinities because he preached Jesus and the resurrection. Now, you see the mistake they made. He talked about uh, anastasis. Anastasis, the Greek word for resurrection. So when he began to talk about the resurrection, they thought that he was setting forth a strange divinity like Jesus. Now, they completely missed the point. Well, who were these Epicureans? Well, the Epicurean was a man who said, and he had a theory of ethics, just like uh, the chart points out here. You know, the Greeks had their uh, philosophical theory of ethics. This is one of the schools, Epicureans. The Epicurean puzzle, how can I best get through life? You know, what can I do that will, you know, get me through life the best way possible? Well, the Epicurean says there's a simple answer. What you want to do is maximize pleasure. Simple solution. Maximize pleasure. Whatever you want to do, do it and enjoy life and maximize pleasure. Now, the Stoic says... Well, that has a problem, because if you are a hedonist, which is the word that goes with that, one who maximizes pleasure, Epicurean and hedonism are the same school, the Stoic says, yes, but uh, if you like alcohol, and you imbibe too much alcohol, you have a hangover. So therefore, you haven't really enjoyed yourself as you thought you would. So, says the Stoic, the way to go through life is by uh, a very rigorous uh, regulation of conduct. And so these are the rigorous. Boy, we're we going to hear of them again. In chapter 7, these are the ones who are arguing it's not good for a man to touch a woman. These are the stoic rigorous. Of the monastic sort of element, if you like, in the Grecian society. The hedonists, these are the ones who say, you know, why should my liberty be judged by another man's conscience. Well, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, so why can't I eat meats offered to idols? After all, an idol is nothing. So you see, in the Ecclesia, you have reflected the hedonistic element who maximize pleasure, engaging in immorality because they say, well, the body, what's the body? What's important is the spirit, the mind. They're making the old Grecian dichotomy. Form and matter. Body is the matter, form is the mind, so why not engage in pornea? So you see, when you get to chapter 7, you have reflected there the background of Grecian society. So Paul meets the Stoics and the philosophers who come along, and he argues with them. You know, it's a great lesson here. You know, we have some open-air speaking spots throughout uh, Canada, 
And uh, you have them in uh, South Australia and uh, Sydney area as well. Now, the Sydney domain must be much like uh, the marketplace, the agora of the uh, Athenians. South Australia is more, uh, more dignified, I suppose, than the Sydney domain. You don't get so many lewd fellows of the baser sort that uh, come along to the Sydney domain, to use a biblical expression. Some wicked fellows of the rabble, they're called by Luke. But, you know, despite the fact that there's Stoics and philosophers there, where's the Apostle Paul? Bodily presence weak, speech contemptible. He goes right down and he takes on the Stoics and the philosophers. And he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons. And if there's one lesson that comes through here, brothers and sisters, it's a lesson that we should never rule out the preaching possibilities because of a man's social status. You know, just supposing someone came along and said, well, you know, are they really brethren down there in Barbados, those black brethren? What about those Fijians? Uh, do you really think they can understand, uh, you know, the deeper things of the word? Well, I suppose... From the human viewpoint, uh, you would say, well, uh, you know, uh, they don't have a culture like um, we white people do. I mean, after all, look at the uh, great uh, tradition the British Empire has. And then put yourself back in Corinth. And just suppose you were the Apostle Paul. Are you going to go down there and take on these Stoics and philosophers in Corinth? Where they have the abominable morals? No, you would say they don't have a cultural base that can appreciate the truth. And you see, brothers and sisters, you would have made the mistake because God said, I have many people in this city. And therefore, brothers and sisters, we ought to go very, very carefully how we criticize the work that goes on the mission fields throughout the world. Now, of course, we would be the first to advocate that we ought to go about our work diligently, systematically, and thoroughly. But because evil reports may circulate from some parts of the Brotherhood, just think of Corinth. They had the problem of idolatry at Corinth. They had the problem of immorality at Corinth. Some even denied the resurrection at Corinth. Now, did God make a mistake in sending Paul to Corinth? No, God did not make a mistake in sending Paul to Corinth. And therefore, when we have reports fed back from our mission field of difficulties, brethren, let us not be discouraged. What we are really facing is the same problems of the first century. Raw, intractable human flesh. And it takes time. And so Paul continues to preach uh, to these Greeks. He isn't too successful at Athens. And uh, with a few converts, as we see, verse 34 of chapter 17, but some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a certain woman named Damaris, and others with them. And you can tell by these names uh, who they're named after. Dionysius was named after the wine god. But these were the converts uh, at Athens. Paul leaves Athens and came to Corinth. And when he came there, he found the Jew Aquila, verse 2 of chapter 18, a native of Pontus, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, 
he stayed with them. And they worked, for by trade they were tent makers. And he argued in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded Jews and Greeks. And when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with preaching, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. Well, you can get the picture. Now, where would you expect to find the Apostle Paul preaching? What was he doing on Saturday? He was down at the synagogue arguing, reasoning, and persuading. And you know, friends, so often today, that word argue is looked upon in a, in a very bad light as if to argue about the truth is somehow degrading its great devotion. But if you read through Acts of the Apostles, as I'm sure you've done, you can't help but think of the, the very vigorous spirit with which these men went about the business of preaching. They took on the Stoics or the philosophers or anybody who came their way. They argued. They debated. In fact, in Jude, where, when it tells us to earnestly contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints, it means to debate, to argue, to reason. That's the force of that Greek word to contend. And so the apostle is vigorously engaging the religionists of his society. Now I happen to uh, pick up a few leaflets on my way through. Now certainly that would be comparable to what the Apostle Paul was doing. Bible truths not taught in the churches. Communist, communism, Catholicism, united, then crushed, Christ is coming. And you can imagine that not everyone would respond favorably to those kind of leaflets, but friends, at least they hear what the truth is. As the Apostle Paul said, uh, these gods whom ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. And if there's anything that we could perhaps pull our socks up in this age, is that we've left the compatible ground of the churches. You know, John Thomas would go down to a peace society movement and stand up there and exercise his voice to tell them that they were deluded because God had declared war and their efforts were futile. And he said, my efforts were like a dewdrop in the ocean. Not many people listened. But one thing, those men were with their times. And so often the Trinity that we flog today is not the Trinity that's even taught in the Church of England today. But these men were abreast with what was going on. John Thomas said, I, uh, I vacillated from my bed above to my table below. And he was writing out as Israel. And his only break was to read the, uh, the morning newspaper. They kept up. And that's why, you know, the Presbyterians in Canada quote Robert Roberts' defense of the truth against Edward Hine, our Englishman Israelites. Can you imagine that? That the Presbyterians so respected Robert Roberts' debate against the leading Anglo-Israelite of, of his day that they cite the publication. But brethren and sisters, what's happened today? Where are the mighty men today? Prepare to take on the big men of the opposite camp in society. 
Now, is the problem that we're not producing the kind of Bible students that we ought to be? This is a problem we have in Toronto. Is it that we have too many competing agencies today for our time that we can't get down to the real meat of the word? Now, none of us are going to be so bold or so foolish as to walk into situations that we can't produce the goods. I'm sure of that. But why isn't it that in our young ranks, brothers and sisters, we aren't producing more of the Robert Roberts and the John Thomases? In my work at university, I went through some, uh, some old manuscripts. And in the manuscripts was the minutes of the Baptist church. And you know what, ironically, the minutes contained? It contained a motion as to how in the Hamilton area of Toronto, the Baptists would stop the influence of the Christadelphians who had made such large inroads from debating with the local clergymen. But if you were to go to Hamilton today, you'd have to look pretty far to find any Christadelphian bold enough to debate the clergy. He'd be afraid of getting cut off base. Now that ought to be a real incentive to our young brethren and maybe to our middle-aged brethren that by the grace of God, by a diligent application to his word, we can speak and speak boldly. And that word is used more often than any other word of the preaching in the first century. They preached boldly. The Apostle Paul said to the Ephesians, he besought them that they would pray for him that he may speak boldly as he ought to speak. Now, let's draw, you know, kind of a lesson from this for our young people. Supposing you're in a biology course at university. Or supposing you're even in the behavioral sciences. Supposing you're in psychology or sociology. Well, you're going to find problems. As I think uh, this quotation would indicate. The tale could be told a thousand times. This is not a Christadelphian of a Christian church or school or mission society or some other organization founded by men of strong biblical faith, slowly but steadily, drifting off its foundations and gradually sinking in the sands of modernism and secularism. This tragedy repeated times without number almost always begins with a questioning of biblical creationism. The scriptural account of origins must somehow be accommodated to the latest scientific theories of origins which are always evolutionary. This accommodation inevitably and necessarily leads to a softening of the doctrine of biblical inspiration and infallibility. And boy, are we going to come to this when we go through the influence of inspiration in chapter 1. Other creative acts of God, that is, recorded miracles, begin to be questioned, and a view of biblical inspiration which allows for cultural limitations and even for outright contradictions becomes adopted. The proper activity for modern Christians eventually becomes more social action. Striving to help in the future evolution of the social order into a more advanced and enlightened humanistic society. And the writer goes on to comment how that uh, 
This has infiltrated even subjects like linguistics, social anthropology, comparative law, religion, all studied from an evolutionary aspect. Well, I dare say, young people, that uh, if you're going to be able to stand your ground against this tremendous pull and push of the world, you have to have the evidence. And you're not going to be inclined to stand up for the literalness of the days of creation unless you've made that a personal subject of investigation and you have confidence in your material. And what we need today, brothers and sisters, is more mighty men. We won't lose our young people to the world. If our young people study more, we won't lose them to the world, brothers and sisters, because the truth is intellectually defensible. And that's been proven over past controversies. But let that citation be a warning to us, those of us who are involved in higher education, of the dangers that lurk ahead, and how we must be bold through the strength that comes from reading the Word, like the Apostle Paul was. And you might note in uh, the encounter that we have here, the Apostle Paul testified to the Jews. Do you notice the force of the conviction this man had? This was serious business because he was out to save men who were perishing. And so when they turned their back on him, what do you think the Apostle Paul did? Go back home and say, oh, well, it's like the days of Noah. They won't hear anyway and bury your nose in a novel or uh, kind of relax with a TV football game. Not the Apostle Paul. Do you know where he went? Look at verse 7. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Did he use opposition as an excuse for quitting? Not the Apostle Paul, young people. He went next door and continued to carry on his work. And what happened? Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with all his household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. And you know, as the events went on, verse 17, this uh, mob of individuals that were collected together and took Paul before Galileo, they seized Sothenes, the ruler of the synagogue. They beat him in front of the tribunal, but Galileo paid no attention to these. Well, you know, that's a kind of spirit that the truth grew in that's just foreign to our, our age. The only close approximation I can think of this is sometimes in Allen Gardens, where protagonists who can't defeat you by the uh, force of argument try to uh, clean you up by the argument of force, but it doesn't happen very often. The apostle went into the synagogue and argued with the Jews, verse 19, and meantime, over at Ephesus, Corinth is here, over in Ephesus, there's a young man, a Jew, verse 24, who's going to be a real problem at Corinth. A Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria. Boy, does that say a lot. The Alexandrian school of philosophy, they spent a lot of time uh, working on allegory. And they spent a long time uh, teaching Homer and developing the allegorical form of reasoning. And so he's an eloquent man, but he's well-versed in the scriptures. He's instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately 
the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, and when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and expounded to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully confuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Brothers and sisters, don't we need more apostles? We need more apostles for the bank of the Yarra River to open air speak on Sunday, more in the Sydney domain, more in Elder Park, more in Grand Valley, more in Allen Gardens in Toronto, and more in the West Indian fields of men who are able to powerfully confute in public, showing by the scriptures. People, brothers and sisters, who have been molded by drinking deep at the well of life. And this man who moved into Corinth in such an innocuous sort of way was to be the idol of the Greek element of that ecclesia. Paul, his bodily presence is weak and his speech is contemptible. But Apollos, well, he's an eloquent man, mighty in the scriptures, fervent in the spirit. So what do you have, brothers and sisters? You have all the elements for the factions and the party spirits that sprung up in Corinth. And we must stop now at this stage, but let's outline these. In Corinthians chapter 1, you have the Cephas party. We don't hear very much about the Cephas party, but presumably these were the Judaizers. And we'll learn when we move into 2 Corinthians that uh, this became a very potent and troublesome force in the Ecclesia because these were undermining the influence of the Apostle Paul. Not only did you have the Cephas party, you had the Paul party. And so the Apostle, who uh, really said to these Corinthians, look, you are my epistle, he's merely made the leader of a faction in the Ecclesia. He no longer is the foundation of the Ecclesia. So you have the Paul party. Then you have the party following Apollos. And these, of course, would likely be the Greek elements who delighted in rhetoric and sophistry and eloquence. They would rally behind Apollos. And finally you had the Christ party. We're not told precisely uh, who followed the Christ party. They may have been the neutral party and said, well, we follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Or on the other hand, they may have been the party who had personally seen the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't know for sure. Anyway, these are the factions that we see uh, growing up in Corinth. And next time, we're a little uh, behind schedule in uh, looking at that no human flesh might boast in his presence, but we provided the background to evaluate now what's going to happen. And how the Apostle Paul is going to labor and work and travail over this Corinthian Ecclesia as he sees these factions rending apart the sacrificial work of the Lord Jesus Christ.
Sisters, it's question time. I'm sure if you can shoot your questions to Brother Ron, he can certainly answer you. I'm sure we've been all impressed at the wit of our brother Ron's thinking, rather than perhaps the narrowness that we seem to be getting into. And so we'll leave it to you to ask your questions or whatever your thoughts are with Brother Ron. Brother Ron, you mentioned uh, two address titles which you indicated and attacking either political or church teaching and do you think perhaps there's a need today also to direct people into the um, the more basic side of the gospel insofar that there are thousands of people probably millions both in this country and undoubtedly in North America that have no understanding that probably don't even know what Jesus Christ was or is um, perhaps just a profane word for them I'm talking about the sort of people you see sort of the drug addicts and the harlots and all these sort of people do you think that we should try to present a message to these people at all? Martin's question really is asking should we be selective in our preaching work? Can I relate to you a very quick anecdote? We just have come from a campaign in Launceston, Tasmania. And one of our young sisters was talking to a clergyman. She was inviting people out on the street, and a clergyman came along. So he said, I'd like to meet the Christadelphians. So I, with another brother, went down to, uh, to meet this clergyman and uh, went into, this is the biggest church of England in Launceston. So to the smell of uh, very ornate... Uh, tobacco, uh, we moved into this, this lounge that this minister had, and he put his feet up, and uh, so we assumed the, uh, the initiative, and the brother that was with me says, you know, what do you teach about the nature of man? So he says, well, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> so he said, well, don't you think that man's immortal? He says, no. He says, I don't, I don't think that man has an immortal soul. So he said, the Christadelphian said to him, well, what does that do to your trinity? If a uh, man doesn't have an immortal soul, then when Jesus died, uh, I guess he couldn't have been God. He said, oh, he says, I don't think that follows. Uh, he says, I'm not sure what happened to Jesus when he died. And so we proceeded to uh, show, for example, what happened to Lazarus when he died. Lazarus rose from the dead? I don't, I don't think he said Lazarus uh, was raised from the dead. So he is rather astonished that we could be such simpletons as to believe Lazarus rose from the dead. So he said, you don't really expect me to tell my people that Christ turned uh, water into, uh, into wine. He said, what would they think if I told them that? So he said, well, what do you think about the other miracles in John's Gospel? He said, well, to tell you, Mr. Abel, I don't even think John wrote John. Well, this, uh, as the discussion proceeded, this clergyman said, well, if the Apostle Paul showed up here, he says, I'd have to straighten him out on a few things. He was a man bound by the spirit of his age. So I became suspicious. I asked him what school of philosophy he had worked under. He said, I'm a religious existentialist. A religious existentialist. Well, for those of you who know the school of existentialism, you'll know how incompatible that is with every tenet of the gospel. Inspiration to him means absolutely nothing 
in terms of what it would mean to a Christadelphian. There's no thus saith the Lord uh, in Scripture insofar as to think that revelation is propositional. This would be a big factor in tomorrow's address, Lord willing. Now, where do you meet a man like that? He would just as soon sit down and read Bonhoeffer's letters or read about Bishop Robinson, honest to God. Well, that reflects part of Martin's concern, I guess, that uh, people in the religious system are uh, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men because uh, they can't get anywhere by teaching them the commandments of Christ, apparently. I don't know how we reach a person like that, Martin. Um, we took the angle that uh, the Bible is an inspired, God-breathed narrative and completely reliable, and we can test it by the prophecies it makes. So, back into Ezekiel 38. What do you do with Rosh, Meshach, Tubal, with the Jew back in his homeland? Well, of course, he... I don't know when the last time he consulted Ezekiel was as a clergyman, but it hadn't been for a long time, I can assure you. Well, we tried to reach that class of person by prophetic subjects. It has been my experience that the prophetic subject tends to appeal to a certain segment of the religious population. It may work. And therefore, by using a variety of media, maybe we can reach these persons. In Tasmania, we went around the television studios, the radio studios, to the newspaper. We had free television time, a free radio interview, and I don't know how many people we, we reached, but the radio interview was fantastic. I mean, we couldn't have wished for a, a more open, fair presentation of the truth than they gave us on radio. Can I suggest one other approach that may work? We did a real good thing in Southern Ontario. I don't recommend that lectures be confined to this subject, but it worked for us. It may work for your ecclesia. Now, the title of this campaign was Bible Answers, False Teaching, to those pesky JWs who always knocked on their doors but just didn't have the goods to produce. And you know, we hit something that was psychologically really attractive. So on our leaflet, we had this title and following this, we would put in our, uh, a publication with it. Most people do not know how to... Uh, uh, most people do not know their Bibles the way they would like to and consequently are unable to give Bible answers to Jehovah's Witnesses. Come along to uh, this presentation and we'll give you Bible answers. That was the, the basic gist of the, of the leaflet. Now, we didn't put our name on it. It was, this presentation is sponsored by ASK, the Advancement of Scriptural Knowledge. That's not our usual practice. Use your name goes with the leaflet. But the trouble is, people confuse Jehovah's Witnesses with Christadelphians and they think you're some newfangled sect and as a result, the psychological appeal was killed because in some areas, the ecclesias required us to put the name on the leaflet. And whenever we did that, we got almost nobody out. But as it stood, uh, we, we were required to answer three questions. A, uh, will 144,000 go to heaven? Did Jesus Christ come back in 1914? And who are Jehovah's Witnesses? There are the three propositions 
that we set out in our leaflet that we would give Bible answers to to anyone that came along. Well, we uh, pushed about uh, 10,000 leaflets in every little town we went into. Uh, we'd go down to the witness hall, the JW hall, we'd give them all a personal invitation to come on out to the talks and give them an open question period. If we misrepresented any of their teaching, they could challenge us publicly from the floor. Well, that's a pretty, uh, pretty good offer. But we appealed to Pentecostals, Church of England. The old parsons would sneak in the door because they couldn't give answers to the witnesses. <laughs> and so consequently, in these open question periods, uh, there was a really vigorous presentation of the truth. Now, brethren, let me assure you that the brethren involved in this work show perfect courtesy to all men when they stand up to speak. They outline that uh, we represent the Christadelphians. We encourage Bible reading and Bible understanding. They would then proceed to tell them that, you know, they, they come thinking not only 144,000, but everybody's going to go to heaven. And they come into our hall and find out nobody's going there, that the earth, not heaven, is the promised place of reward. They often come, uh, you know, thinking that Jesus will never again touch the earth, that there's going to be a great rapture and all the righteous are wafted up to heaven to find out that Jesus' return is imminent. That's quite a big surprise for the minister or for the Pentecostal or the Baptist who comes along. Well, without going into too much more detail, Martin, we always had visitors out and it produced a raft of young people and baptisms that Toronto hasn't seen since. And it encouraged us to read and study our Bibles because we had Mormon missionaries coming out. And they would come and I'd be watching the leaflets and they'd say, uh, tell me, who were the two sticks in Ezekiel 30... Uh, 37. Two sticks in Ezekiel 37. Yeah, that's the Bible in the Book of Mormon. Well, you know, if you haven't looked at Ezekiel 37 and you've got two sticks that are going to be joined and the Mormon argues one's the Mormon and the other's the Bible, then you've got to do some pretty fast reading. And so needless to say, a lot of our young people did some really hasty Bible study. And nothing will, you know, urge you into Bible study more than to get caught without the right answer at the right time. And uh, we had to prepare hard and long for this kind of presentation. And it was very, very successful. Baptisms resulted. And there are still Bible classes going in Ontario as a result of this style of campaign. So, Martin, there's two suggestions. I don't have any universal answer. That's just two suggestions that might work wherever you're working. That's a pretty difficult question to give a brief answer to. Uh, in short, I would recommend the reading of Exodus chapter 20. Verse 11. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, 
the sea and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and hallowed it. Then it continues. Now would God command an Israelite to rest on one day what took six geological epochs to do or six unspecified time periods or six days of uh, revelationary visions? No, to an Israelite hearing those instructions, I suggest, there's only one thing he could deduce, that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. Genesis chapter 1. There's problems when we begin to leave the literalness of the narrative. First of all, verse 12. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And there was evening and there was morning at third day. A, the time period designated, is covered by an evening and a morning at third day. And although day is used in more than one sense in Scripture, here the day is defined to be that area bounded by an evening and a morning. Secondly, let's suppose, in fact, we have some giant uh, geological epoch they have a thousand years between these days. Here you have the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kind, trees bearing fruit according to their own kind. But what about those kind of, uh, of plants that require uh, insect pollination for their uh, progeny to continue? Notice, this isn't until the fifth day. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the sea, and let birds multiply in the earth. And there was evening and morning. Verse 21, he talks about the insect creatures. Now there are certain plants, like the yucca plant and the pranuba moth, who have a symbiotic relationship. They're mutually interdependent. One can't exist without the other, like the lichens and certain mosses. Now if you have these plants existing at one period in time, and a great geological epoch of a thousand years, how are these plants going to reproduce? And certain plants, for example, require pollinization by certain specific insects, like the poppy, for example. And so these are a few of the reasons why I take the days in Genesis to be literal days, both expositionally and because of the reasoning involved around those narratives. Of the cultural or financial background of the brethren and sisters of the current ecclesia? Yes, there is. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. For 
Therefore, consider your call, brethren. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Now, Pete, from this uh, passage, we see that there weren't very many noble, by worldly standards, in the Corinthian ecclesia. But that, in actual fact, in this ecclesia, you would have a cross-section, no doubt, of society. But predominantly, they came from the base, those without social status, not many noble. Now, this became a problem in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, as we'll see. Uh, In the context here, Uh, Verse 17, the Apostle says of chapter 11, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Now remember, brothers and sisters, they're coming together to partake of the emblems. For in the first place, when you assemble as an ecclesia, I hear there are divisions among you. Now that's not divisions in the sense of different fellowships. Divisions here really means there are different parties, you know, different factions within the Ecclesia. There must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. And brethren, that's an important principle that we'll come to later. When you meet together, it is not for the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the ecclesia of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not, says the apostle. Verse 33. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together to be condemned. Now, I suppose we can, you know, assume the background here, Pete. You had people coming that were rather affluent, maybe the Apollos party, and they would get in their own little clique, and they would have a social meal together. In the meantime, you have uh, Brother X, who is an artisan in society. He's a slave. He has no social standing. And so you have a faction off to the side, and uh, maybe they've been working hard, not had much to eat, and they'd come, and uh, they're going to be spongers. When they they came for the social meal, they would dive in and get everything they could get, much like the problem that we have at uh, Thessalonica. If any man provide not for his own household, Paul told them, he's worse than an infidel and denied the faith. In this occasion, some are hungry, some are full. And no doubt you can see the, the social structure of Corinth being reflected in the cliques in the Ecclesia. There's something else, brethren, apart from Pete's question. There were factions, all right, in the Ecclesia. Factions, I suppose, inevitably. But how do you think you would feel if you were an artisan 
And God gave you the gift of tongues in the Ecclesia or the ability to work miracles such as healing. Chapter 12. But the brother who is a follower of Apollos, an eloquent man with plenty of rhetoric, God doesn't give him a spirit gift. Or maybe God gives him the gift of administration. Now here you have the artisan brother exercising the very showy gift of tongue speaking, speaking foreign languages that he never made the subject to study. And here's Brother X, the follower of the Apollos clique, and he's only an administrator. And nobody sees his gift. Don't you think, brothers and sisters, that would make for factiousness in the Ecclesia if they didn't realize, verse 7 of chapter 12, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Verse 25, that there be no discord in the body, but that the members may have the same care one for another. That was the problem in Corinth. They didn't have the same care one for another. Now, I don't know of any ecclesia that doesn't have uh, factions in it. You know, in the West Indies, sometimes it's the Negro versus the East Indian. Negro in the West Indies tends to take life pretty easy. He likes to sit under his coconut tree and drink his tequila. Well, the East Indian, more aggressive, more industrious. And so in the Ecclesia, where theoretically you have a flat organization, nobody's elevated above another. But when you come to ecclesial elections, you must establish certain people as recording brother, ranging board brother, and so on. Now, what social class is your arranging brother going to come from? Or your recording brother in the Ecclesia? So, factions tend to go even on racial lines when in the truth. It's inevitable, human nature being what it is. It requires patient teaching and instruction to overcome one's social background. Well, the Apostle says, there must needs be factions among you that the genuine may be recognized. Now, in Corinth, as in uh, Galatia, brethren had kept in secretly to spy out the liberty that they had in Christ Jesus. Paul says, look, there's false apostles here. He says, uh, well, his leader is Satan, and uh, not uh, much wonder then that uh, he disguised himself as an angel of light, Paul says. So it is not strange if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. So you see, our ecclesial life is like a divine university. We can never hope, brothers and sisters, to have an ecclesia with no problems in it. But the real test for you and I, how do we react to the factiousness of the ecclesia? How do we react to the problems that cleave our ecclesias individually and ecclesias in a plurality? What's our reaction? Well, brethren, our reaction is either making us stronger in the divine service we're either employing the principles of righteousness and sanctification from the word, or we're resorting to the thinking of the flesh. And Corinth had plenty of members that were resorting to the thinking of the flesh. And so factions must need be, says the apostle, to distinguish the genuine. And as we face our problems, we're in the divine university. We're being tried, brothers and sisters, whether we're gold, silver, hay, wood, or stubble. And we must take care of the foundation on which we're building. In Corinth, different social classes uh, implied differences of status in society. 
We have different problems in South Australia, no doubt, than you have in Melbourne. But whatever your problems are, brothers and sisters, you're in the divine university. And the brother who says, and some have in Ontario, well, if only I had a little plot of land about uh, 20 miles out in the country where I could uh, get away from all these ecclesial problems and headaches and uh, just meditate on the word and uh, raise my family in the ways of righteousness, uh, boy, life would be a lot better than the truth. You know what happens, brothers and sisters? Isolation is the graveyard for those kind of Christadelphians because that's not where discipleship is made. Discipleship is made in the heat of battle when we're in here building and chiseling our characters. When a divine potter is fashioning our clay, a vessel fit for eternal honor. And so the apostle says, we have this great treasure in earthen vessels so that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. It isn't so much, brothers and sisters, that we ourselves might be able to retain the purity of the truth by finding a plot of land in the bush. We might be able to. But that's not what God requires of us, brothers and sisters. God's given us talents and energies, capabilities to read and meditate upon his word. Are we feeding the sheep? Are we being shepherds to the sheep? What kind of uh, shepherd is he that when he sees the wolf coming, leads the sheep? Jesus says he's a hireling. And so we can't expect to run, a run away from these problems in the divine university that's perfecting character. We've got to get in there, brothers and sisters, and use the discipline to use the instruction that comes from feeding on his word. Because ye that are strong, says the apostle, ought to bear the infirmities of those who are weak. 